Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am AJ, and I'm going to recap the year of 2020, uh, mainly from an MMA betting standpoint. The purpose of this um, audio recording is to to enlighten, to inspire, uh, not to get on here and brag. Uh, we'll share some results, and that's why I do state that int intention uh, very clearly. At least that's my intention with saying that. Uh, hopefully you perceive it the same way. Um, and kind of just run through through some things that uh, you know really made this year uh, special. You know, this year for for many of us, uh, maybe even all of us, was was unlike uh, anything that we've experienced before for a multitude of reasons. Um, and so, wanted to get on here, and you know, I could I could go on and on about you know every little detail about what happened throughout the year, but want to just mainly get on. Uh, from a betting standpoint, uh, before doing that, I'd like to wish you all a uh, happy holiday season. I'm actually recording this year on the 23rd, but after I send it out to you guys, it'll be after that that time frame, or maybe not. Um, you know, obviously the new year is coming up as well. So happy early new year to you all. And I would like to also thank each and every single one of you for uh, listening to me. If you're a mailing list subscriber, you're just somebody that happened to stumble upon this audio clip. Thank you so much. Um, the support has honestly been tremendous. You know, I started off this year, you know, not uh, really sure as to what was going to happen. I just kind of took a leap of faith, left my corporate job in January, uh, wanted to do this. And then, you know, this, there was obviously some circumstances that happened with the world uh, that kind of made it discouraging, challenging uh, for, for everybody to really overcome. Uh, but uh, really happy that we were able to overcome the circumstances here and then, uh, you know, make it to this point in time. So thank you guys so much. Uh, just, it's been, the, the support has just been tremendous. Um, like I say, I just have, I didn't really start out the year, uh, with, uh, I guess the most clear mindset, you know, when I first started out, I honestly thought I was going to be betting a, a whole lot of sports. Um, but in a way the other sports being canceled, the MMA being the one, the first one that was brought back, uh, was kind of like a blessing in disguise in a way for for me at least, just because I was able to really hone my craft as a sports handicapper and realize like, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and I just find for me personally that I'm I'm way better suited for focusing on one sport betting. Yeah, I mean, occasionally if MMA's, you know, we're at a little bit of a break and there's some other sports going on, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll take a look at those. But you know, you basically get what I'm trying to say. You know, MMA is the priority, the number one for me. Um, so again, you know, we made it up until this point. And really happy for that. And yeah, um, sent out my MMA betting hindsight is 2020 content piece uh, to the subscribers on the mailing list. I also posted it on Twitter. I believe it's still my pinned tweets. Um, it's a content piece that basically just, again, recaps the year betting wise. If you're more of a reader than, than a listener via podcast, I totally get it. Uh, just really put that together. Had an editor look at it. Shout out to Brianna. She's been doing a great job of editing. Uh, all the content pieces that I've been putting together. Uh, she's very good at that sort of thing. So like I said, I've had a lot of support throughout the throughout the year, a lot of people helping me out, and I greatly, greatly appreciate all of it. So gonna get on here and recap the year betting wise. Um, it's it was a very it was a year with a lot of lessons and blessings. Like this year, I at one point was down by as many as a little over 14 units, and I knew something really needed to change some things needed to change. And so I did just that. Um, cause if I, you know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Right. 
Um, and I wanted different results. So what did I do? I went back and I really wanted to hone my craft as a handicapper. And, you know, what I wanted to do was just go back on tape, really, you know, listen carefully to what these commentators are saying, you know, in, in the UFC, you know, these guys have been, you know, studying the sport, doing the sport for however many years, you know, Paul Felder, Michael Bisping, Daniel Cormier, John Anik, Joe Rogan, like everybody, you know, uh, Brandon Fitzgerald, everybody really. And they know so much. So by listening to other people, um, cause I, you know, this was actually, it's, it's bizarre to say now because it just, it seems like it was so long ago. I actually used to not listen with the commentary team on. So I used to think, a while ago that it's better for me to listen to music while I'm studying tape when really I'm not learning as much by doing that. You know, these, you, you can gain so much knowledge by just listening to these guys at the desk. Right. I mean, they, they know so much about the sport and they study the sport very, very dil diligently. And it's very like humbling, humbling for me to say it. And I'm saying it with true honesty, they know so much more about, about the nitty gritties of these guys, just hands-on experience, just infinitely more than I do. Right. So by just learning you know, from another perspective, somebody who's been there, done that so many times year after year, um, it really, you know, you know, lifts the, the consciousness of the listener, right? You could gain so much knowledge. And um, that was part of it, along with pausing the video to take notes. I sent um, on the content piece that MMA betting hindsight is 2020 content piece. I sent you guys uh, a little screenshot of what kind of my notes are like. I'll have like a pros. Um, part and then like a cons part of each fighter and then how it pertains to the stylistic matchup and kind of go and organized specific detail because well for a couple of reasons one I just feel like my my frame of mind is way more clear that way um, and I'm able to like pinpoint you know everything's just a lot more structured and the decision making is a lot easier but also there's a lot of times or obviously this year especially where we've had a lot about cancellations and so it could be discouraging for somebody who doesn't take notes notes or say doesn't have uh, the memory that they would like to get a solid read on a fighter uh, for about to get canceled. And then, you know, you have to go back and redo the tape on that fighter for whenever they're going to get scheduled next. Right. Whereas if I'm taking, if we're taking notes on the computer, you don't have to do, I mean, you don't have to go study as much. I mean, maybe you want to go back and look at it a little bit more, brush up on it a little bit. I know I do, uh, but I'm not doing it nearly. I'm saving so much more time by doing it that way, taking specific organized notes, saving them, of course, and then referring back to them to whenever that fighter is booked, right? Um, so that saves a, a lot of time and effort um, in the process. And this is something that I didn't do before. Again, I would look at tape, but you know, I wasn't taking notes as diligently as I'd like to. Like, it's it's effort, no doubt about it. But it's not like effort where I'm like stressing myself and um, you know I, I feel like it's not really benefiting me. I know it is. You know, the results are, are very evident um, as we'll get into my my growth for the rest of the year, I profited over 30 units from that point on from when I was down 14 units, I profited uh, over 30 units to end the year and I ended the year in the green, uh, a little over 18 units profit. So again, I'm not saying that to brag, I'm saying that with intention to inspire and enlighten it doesn't need to just be applied to MMA betting, right? If there's something that you're really, really passionate about, I mean, everybody, again, could do whatever they want. But I just for my own philosophy, if you're really passionate about something, um, I'm willing to find that way. You know, I want to, I want to find the way to get there from point A to point B. If I have the goal, if I have a goal and I have a specific set of intentions as to how to get to that goal, I'm going to get there. You know, if that's, if this is what I really want to do, I'm going to get there, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where, 
you can do anything you want to. I mean, you're 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 gonna go as far as your mind takes you. How how much do you believe? You know, because um, you're you're living life uh, through your perspective, right? So um, that's just something that I learned. You know, just kind of elevating my my consciousness. Really, uh, just kind of seeing that it's it's more or less just me versus me every day, or you versus you, however you want to look at it. You know, from from the perspective of the the person. Um, you know, our, our minds are a very, very powerful tool. Um, and, and sometimes they, they could be our enemy, but sometimes they could be our best friend if we, uh, and, and they could, they could, they could keep being our best friend for however long, infinite amount of time, uh, with, you know, you know, some, some brush ups along the way, but you know, you get the point of just, you could do it. Um, don't let anything discourage you from doing what you truly desire, what you want to do with good intentions and, and, and coming from a place of integrity. It really is all possible because, man, if you would have told me, you know, somebody could be a, a successful gambler long term profit wise, you know, five years ago, or whatever, when I wasn't thinking as as largely as I'm not, as I am now and, you know, not as open minded as I am now, I would have said that was crazy. Like, no way. But again, you you could go as far as your mind takes you. So um, again, that's my my uh, you know something that I, I took away from this journey. You know, because again, going back to my point with leaving my corporate job, I didn't know how well this was going to turn out. I think all things considered, it tur it turned out really well, and I don't regret the decision at all. And I feel like it's really benefited not only me but everybody else uh, around me. You know, and that's really important because sometimes. Um, you know, being, being selfless is very important, but sometimes, uh, we need, we need to get our own shit together, right? You know, we need to get our shit together before we could, we could help others out. Um, and that's something that I really needed to, to embrace, um, a lot of the time. Um, my, my goal has always been to serve others, right? But, but I need to, with that in mind, realize that, Hey, I need to take care of myself as well. You know, everybody's, you know, on the same kind of playing field. We could all help each other out, all cooperate. And there's no need for competition. I, I just always have thought, you know, the the competition mindset to me has always just kind of been bizarre, um, to be quite honest. I mean, <clears throat> I don't see a point in competing with others that are around me when we could all cooperate, we could all relate to one another. And therefore, just, you know, th there's no need for those uh, bad feelings, if you will. Um, and I feel, I really feel like by just everybody helping each other out, going back to my point, I'm kind of going on a long winded rant here about the commentary team is I could learn so much from these guys at the desk and everybody else in the industry, the betters, everybody, you know, by just, you know, what they have to share on the mic. Cause we all have a different perspective, right? You know, there's things that I see that Joe, Joe doesn't see. There's things that Joe sees that, that I don't see. Right. And, and Karen sees that I don't see. Right. So it, it goes, you know, again, all about the perspective, right? All about that perspective. So wanted to hone in on that. Um, also, I really started to take a deep dive into like tapology records. And so if you're not familiar with tapology, it's a good, it's a totally free source, by the way, it's a convenient to use. It usually shows up on Google as like one of your first uh, search options, you know, when looking for a fighter, researching them. And what it does for, for me at least is, you know, one, it's really nice because it can link your, the fighter that you're researching to all the different relevant databases, right? So Instagram, uh, SureDog, Wikipedia, et cetera, et cetera. There's like nine or 10 or however, it depends on the fighter, but there's a lot, right? All the, all the databases are linked to the fighter. The, also, the other important thing that I really like about Tapology is you could see the opposition's records at the time when that fighter fought them 
um, and obviously see the result there as well. I think that's very, very important, especially with like debuting fighters in the UFC, because those are just fighters that we don't know as much about, right? Um, you know, a lot of these fighters are coming in with like 10 or so pro fights or less. Um, if they have more, that's great. But, you know, there's fighters that the footage of them is is just not as much as some other fighters, right? You know, we when we're seeing fighters perform time and time again inside the UFC's octagon, um, like obviously like Anthony Pettis, who just fought this past weekend, you know, he, obviously we have a lot of UFC data on a guy like him, but then there's just fighters that we just don't. And he's like an extreme example. Um, and we kind of need to take a, a deeper dive. You know, there's not as much footage on some of these guys that are, are coming in on the regional scene. And, and we're kind of therefore playing a little bit of a guessing game an educated guessing game. Uh, but why sources like topology and even Instagram help is because it kind of just helps the the guests more educated. You know, when you're looking at the tapology record, you could see the level of opposition they face. Okay, this guy's fought a guy's 10 and 0. He won a decision. That's nice. Uh, just looking to see how many times has this fighter been the distance? You know, is this one of these fighters that just only finishes fights in the first round? What's the, it begs the question, what is their cardio like in round two? What is the cardio like in round three? Sometimes it turns out to be fine, like uh, Tefan Njoku, or Njoku, uh, this fought this past uh, weekend against uh, Jimmy Pickett. Uh, tremendous talent. We just weren't for me, at least, I wasn't really sure what his cardio was like beyond round two, just because he hadn't been past the second round in pro and May, but it turned out to be great. But then there's other instances where fighters are just going out there and they have all these like 10 of their first pro fights or first round finishes. And then what happens when they get pushed? Well, they slow down, they get tired. Right. So it's something that, again, it, it, it could go either way, but it still is important to know, at least I feel um, on the Instagram side of things, I think Instagram is nice because you could just see where the fighters are training, like if they're training an American top team or what, um, you know, a lot of fighters will have in their, you know, their bios, what BJJ rank they are, you know, other kind of accolades that they've had that you wouldn't find on, say, like Wikipedia or, you know, Sherdog, things like that. Um, so I think that that stuff has really helped benefit me, even though it's so simple to just kind of look on one of these sides. I mean, for crying out loud, we're living in an age where people are not stop looking at their phones. It, it, it is no, uh, inconvenience, at least from, from one point of view to kind of just gloss over uh, a fighter's Instagram page or a tapology record, you know, and just kind of glance over and see, <clears throat> you know, what kind of accomplishments that they have and things like that. Cause you know, they're, they're posting about MMA, right. You know, they, they're, they're well aware of their, of their role and, and what they're doing and, and they're MMA fighters at the end of the day. So they're going to be posting stuff like that. Um, and so that, that is definitely something that was very relevant for me. I'd say definitely though, the most relevant thing was, was definitely tape. I know tape isn't like the, for some people, it, it's something that not everybody has time for. And I totally get it. Um, but it goes back to the, to the notes thing. Like if you're, if you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of time to watch tape, just the, the tape that you can watch, I personally would, would take notes just so you could save yourself more time than, you know, say going back on that fight again. Um, and, and you could, you know, look at a different fight in the future, things like that, just that way you're just saving time, uh, again. So just, it's all about the efficiency. And I think that, you know, tape is definitely the most effective way to learn how a fighter performs because what it comes down to. Um, much more often than not is the stylistic matchup and, and tape study is, I'd say, the most compelling piece when determining that. Um, it's time consuming, no doubt about it, but it is very, very effective. Um, also, fighter interviews are something is something that, you know, I look at. I don't it doesn't change my opinion all too much, but it's it is nice to know where fighters like headspace is at. Um, you know, you don't want um you know, sometimes you, you don't find out until after you place a bet, but, you know, sometimes you don't want a fighter just saying how how easy a fight is going to be, or at least for me, at least, right? 
Um, you don't really want a fighter to be underestimating a, a, another fighter in a, in, a, in a fist fight, right? You know, because it is a fist fight. Um, and we have seen a lot of upsets happen. And, and perhaps it is because of that reason. Perhaps not. Um, but uh, again, I, I like the the headspace, the humbleness. Um, it's important to me. That's mainly what I'm kind of looking for in fighter interviews. I mean, fighters could talk about strategy. That's nice. It's nice to to see that they come in with a game plan. Um, but uh, it, I also kind of take it with a grain of salt because it, it could change kind of based on what they expect the opposition to lo uh, look to do. But then they find out afterwards that the opposition is actually doing this other game plan and therefore they change up their their process or maybe not. Um, so there's a little bit of wiggle room there, I feel like. But mainly I'm just kind of looking to see where their headspace is at. How confident are they? How humble are they? You know, because we've seen fighters lose in this game because they, well, they get a little cocky in there, right? You know, so um, you could kind of like see through that uh, within interviews sometimes. And, and I do think that that is, is important. Um, <clears throat> another thing I'd like to talk about is statistics. Statistics, I'd say, are kind of on the rise. Uh, it's been, a, would say, a bigger talking point in MMA these, these years or these days, I, I should say. Um, you know, with the, the UFC stat provider, the main one that everybody uses, UFCstats.com, of course. Um, it is useful because you can see the significant strikes of each fighter um, in their respective bouts. Uh, the, the, the amount of control time, that's, you know, time in top position, time in the clinch, where they're controlling that action, uh, knockdowns, takedowns. Um, they used to have advances. I don't know if those are going to come back. Maybe not. Um, time will tell. But um, yeah, those I think are are useful. Um, I still do believe that the the tape study is more compelling of the two, but um, it is st the, the the statistics are very useful nonetheless. I do look at them. Um, I do put stock in them, and that uh, they're helpful, right? Uh, so I do think that the statistics are definitely something that maybe I didn't put as much stock to in the past, but I'm I'm definitely putting more stock into them now. Um, and I just want to, to kind of bring this all together here now that I'm kind of wrapping up what I kind of honed in on to, to improve my processes. I want to take it as much information as I possibly can uh, when assessing these stylistic matchups. And I think, and that's kind of relevant, especially recently, because there's been some fighters that the public has kind of been down on because of, say, one performance that they had. But if you look at, like, the aggregate of their fights, you could see that, you know, basically that one performance that it, where they didn't look as good was just a bad performance. It happens sometimes, right? You know, if you're if you're somebody that goes to work, you know, obviously you're motivated to work. You you want to work so you can get money, provide for your family, et cetera. But there's just simply days at work where you're more motivated than others, right? Um, and so it's kind of like a, a different example. But you know, some fighters obviously that they're they're preparing hard. I'm not accusing anybody of slacking off or anything like that. But you know off performances do happen, you know, whether it's mentally or, or physically, you know, there's an injury or something like that, some way or another, there is some kind of thing that hindered their ability to say, uh, you know, make them not look as good as say they did in the aggregate of their fights. And a couple examples I'd like to bring to light here is Gavin Tucker against uh, Billy Quarantillo, right? You know, I think a lot of people were on Quarantillo because of the Rick Glenn fight that Tucker had with Glenn. And I, I agree that that was like, a possibility, but my, I guess my counter argument to that would be, um, as I did pick Tucker, uh, Tucker publicly, uh, shout out to the MMA odds cast on that, um, on that show I did with, uh, Brian Heminger, you know, I think that the public was just putting a lot of stock into that Glenn performance. Whereas watching Tucker, his following to performance, the dude looked like way better than, than those two earlier UFC fights, even the Cecilia fight, the Cecilia fight just, 
again, swept under the rug because he won. Uh, but he showed to be in his two earlier fights, like a, a guy that's kind of like, you know, fast twitch muscle based guy, like really wanted to, you know, be in and out of the pocket, really explosive and kind of, get you know, just be really, um, you know, just kind of not conserve his energy optimally, as I'd say. Uh, certainly not as good as he say did in these two in these three recent fights, right? You know, well, even before the Quantilla fight, you know, he uh, fought at a high pace against Choi. He took him down several times. Um, his striking looked good. His, his boxing looked good, and he won by submission. Uh, even if you want to go back to the Ryan James or the Justin James fight, you know, that was another fight where he didn't he wasn't as takedown heavy, but he was he was volume heavy with his punches, and <clears throat> you know he. He was a guy where, um, and I, I even bet him in that spot. I just thought that, you know, it was possible that maybe Quarantillo could clip him. You know, I was a little nervous about that because uh, James and uh, or James had showed some power in the UFC, no doubt. James did clip him and hurt him early on. He recovered though and went on to Tucker. Uh, but Rick Glenn is not a power puncher. He was able to hurt Tucker, so that's always the risk with betting. And that's all, that's something that I factored into my handicapping. I did factor it into my handicapping with that, uh, with Tucker and Quarantillo was I thought Quarantillo could either maybe clip him and knock him out, or he could, you know, make Tucker tired. Um, even though I wasn't totally sold on that, I still had to factor that into my handicapping process that, Hey, maybe Quarantillo is just fresh, fresher than Tucker in rounds two and three. He's able to overwhelm him, overwhelm him with volume and pace. Right. The mistake that I made in the past was, I didn't set percentages on fighters to win. Um, I do that a lot more now because, you know, on one hand, because I used to always think, well, the, the fight only plays out one time. Why do I need to set percentages? Well, it's actually very important and very crucial to me to set percentages on fighters because it makes the decision that I'm making um, just have more conviction on it, you know, right? So if I'm saying like, you know, if Tucker and, and Quarantillo fight, and I kept Tucker at the as the favorite, right? He should be favored. So he has a, a more than 50% chance to win. How much percent chance do I give him to win? Okay, well, you know, I lined out, yeah, maybe Quarantillo clips him and, and hurts him. He'd be the first guy to knock him out. Um, but it's still possible, you know, like I said, Tucker was hurt by by James and, and Glenn. And so I, I set a percentage of that happening. And I also set a percentage of the other scenario that I outlined, you know, despite Quarantillo being the inferior technical fighter pretty much all around, um, maybe he just... You know, because Quarantillo is such a cardio machine and pace machine, he's not, he's not, he's durable. He's not going to go away. Maybe he's able to overwhelm Tucker, you know, if, if Tucker gets tired um, and, and win in rounds two and three. I factor that in as a percentage as well. Um, and so I set a percentage for that. And I also set a percentage for, by default, how, how likely I thought Tucker was going to win. And if I see a wide discrepancy in the percentage of Tucker winning in the odds, I'm going to bet him. Um, I actually put two units on him as an underdog. I believe him, I got him at plus 120, whereas I had him capped as the favorite. I believe I capped him around like minus 186 or so, uh, about 65%, right? So those are percentages. And I would just like to say, uh, I guess the more times you do the percentages, if you want to go that route in your handicapping, the, the better it's going to be and the more fluid it's going to be. And I just think that, again, the fight only plays out one time. We get that. Um, and, and little caveat, I'm not going to bet a fighter unless if I cap him as the favorite for that reason. Uh, but also just it it helps with the capping process because it just kind of enlightens the open-mindedness, right? Like we acknowledge that these different possibilities of a fight playing out can happen, but how likely are they to happen? We talk about all these fighters that are huge knockout threats, right? Um, and even Chaos Williams this past weekend, you know, that was kind of a, a lesson learned for, for us. Okay, well, what does this guy look like if he can't find the knockout? 
Um, you know, you can make the case that he beat Pereira, but you could also say that the guy, um, you know, how, you know, how was he going to clearly beat Pereira if he didn't find a knockout was basically where I was at uh, with when I bet Pereira, right? Um, so we got to, personally, I always factor that into my handicapping process. Yeah, sure. Of course, this fighter can win. They've shown a win by knockout in the past so many times. Kind of reminds me of like Walt Harris versus Alexander Volkov. But what, how, how, how do I like their chances if I, if they can't win by knockout? Do I think they win a decision more often than not? And in the case of Harris against Volkov, I thought Volkov uh, should have been uh, a bit, a bigger favorite than what he was lined at minus 175 or so. And so I just pretty much thought like Harris had a chance to knock him out early. It's possible. Didn't think it was more than uh, X percent of the time. And so I thought there was value on, on Volkov's line because I just thought he was a much better round winner, uh, better volume, better grappler overall, just more experienced as a, a striker. And he, and he, and he came through. Right. But I acknowledge that if Harris won by won that fight, it was probably going to be by an early knockout. So the win condition would have been hit. So it wouldn't have been this huge surprise. Cause I think a lot of the times, and I used to do this a lot of time too, is we could sometimes overreact to results, especially finishes in MMA, uh, because, you know, it's a finish, it's exciting. It gets us out of our chair and um, you know, it's why we love the sport essentially. But uh, sometimes it could kind of like skew our judgment on, on a fight and almost make us a little afraid to, to play that fighter that has shown to be a potent finisher in the past. And I, I realized that that was a, that was a serious, that was a legitimate risk that I had um, when playing Pereira, you know, I thought, you know, chaos could knock him out, but I also thought that that was probably one of, if not his most likely chance to win or Pereira just kind of, uh, sabotaging himself from doing all of his antics and whatnot. But I also kept that percentage a bit lower than say, uh, previous prayer fights. Cause he's fought with a lot more composure and, you know, in, in these recent fights, you know, against Sanchez, even though it was a DQ, he fought with a lot more composure and against him Right. So, Again, like it, it's something that I just like to set percentages of, and and that way it's not like this huge surprise to say, well, if the fighter that I that I bet loses, then well, hey, the, the other fighter won by, well, they could always win by like a fluke too, you know, just something that you don't see coming. But like just of the more likely scenarios, they won by that condition, right? Um, and so Tyler Santos was another example of this. I think a lot of people were putting uh, stock into her fight against uh mara romero barella right and as a result we saw her as a a decent sized underdog to mccann molly mccann and uh, uh about a pick em fight to robertson right and it's interesting because other than the barella fight i just saw it like they're like santos should be a decent sized favorite here and she looked like a massive favorite in the fight, you know, like the striking wise, I, I'm not going to go, I guess, into extreme depth, but why I played her there against Robertson, I thought she was a much better striker. She's more technical. She's more dangerous. She's got the more varied tools. She's got a five inch reach and I favor her on the feet In the clinch. I favor her as well, too. She's stronger there. Um, I actually thought going into that fight, she was the better overall grappler. Like if you look at like the overall takedown ability of both women, um, you know, Santos is going out there and, and picking up Molly McCann, like over her head, essentially, and like slamming her down. Like she's really physical. Um, Robertson is too, but like, you know, comparing the wrestling dynamic there, like Robertson was getting a lot of her takedowns from, you know, opposition that has kind of shown that liability in the past. You know, Robertson wasn't really setting up her takedown. She has crafty ways to get the fight to the ground, but you know, there's times where she's going for takedowns and she's ending up in bottom position, like against Macedo. Right. So, 
that's she's another fighter i guess would i would say is another like one of those finishers so it kind of makes you it can make somebody like kind of hesitant to bet against her because she has shown to be a potent finisher uh but in this matchup against santos like i really like santos's chances because <laughs> voice crack i liked her chances because she was a better striker she was a better clinch fighter and i thought the more physical just better grappler overall um, and she, you know, dominated that fight with control, you know, de I'm not, you know, you know, Robertson definitely had her moments. She definitely had, you know, the submission threat. She, she had a couple uh, attempts that are locked up, but you know, Santos is a, a high Brazilian Jiu Jitsu practitioner herself. And we see this in MMA, you know, fighters with very high, uh, submission pedigrees typically don't finish each other on the mat, unless if it's like a club and sub or one fighter is just completely gassed. Um, you know, th there usually needs to be like a wide discrepancy in the submission grappling well for, for the finish to materialize, you know, we even saw that another example with Mackenzie Dern and Verna Jandarova, right? You know, Mackenzie's so credentialed in terms of her submission grappling, right? She's about as credentialed as you could get, but Verna's also an excellent submission grappler. And we saw when the two of them tangled on the ground, there wasn't really much going on. Nothing, you know, fight ending was, was, you know, in any kind of danger there from memory. So it's one of those things where we could at times overreact or kind of overrate the finishing upside. And it is always a legitimate possibility, but, I begin to ask myself more and more, what happens when the other fighter cannot find the finish? Do I still trust them to win? And that was a lesson learned in, you know, even the fight when I was betting Mike Perry against Tim Means, right? Was I so confident in, in Perry winning a decision there against Means? Um, perhaps I factored that, that factor that in, but, you know, the main reason for my bet was I just thought Perry had enough power to, to walk Means down um, and hurt him because I thought Means' durability was declining and and, you know, he couldn't find the knockout shot. And so what happened? You know, he lost, you know, and he lost handedly. Um, so it's it's definitely something that I, I factor in. Obviously, if I could get in on a fighter that I think that there's odds value um, straight that I think has the more finishing upside in the matchup and also more upside to win a decision, that is great. Um, but I generally am prioritizing fighters that I trust to win on the scorecards, right? Because there's been so many examples of this, you know, and again, there's, I brought up Chaos Williams, you know, Volkan Uzumir comes to mind. All these fighters that get these quick knockouts, eventually they can't find one, right? That, you know, eventually they face a fighter or, you know, they, they face a fighter where some way, shape or form, they can't find that in early finish. Then what happens, right? And, you know, sometimes fighters go on to win and look great, but then there's a lot of times where they, you know, gas or they show holes in their game, like defensive grappling and, um, you know, it's always basically nice to have multiple paths to victory is what I'm trying to say here. So um, that that's definitely something that I factored in more and more in my handicapping process because finishes are nice. Don't get me wrong. I love finishes. I love to, you know, <laughs> jump out of my chair and whatever one of them happens, whether it's via, via submission or, or knockouts, they are exciting. But um, the excitement, I think, could get, you know, the best of us sometimes right you know and we kind of get again afraid to back uh bet against the fighter and you know more encouraged to, to back the fighter right um when i, I kind of want to just you know more or less take my emotions out of it uh is to put it bluntly um so yeah i mean i, I love the, the finishes but when i'm when i'm handicapping these fights um i gotta only set a certain percentage that to say that these fighters could finish fights and it, it is you know sometimes a higher percentage for some fighters than others but um, especially if you're dealing with fighters in like the light heavyweight or heavyweight division, but it should not be um, for me, at least the end all be all um, when determining a, a matchup, you know, when, when handicapping the fights, because it was kind of, you know, an earlier example, I would even say is like Cannoneer and Whitaker. I, I was confident that Whitaker was the better round winner there. Um, 
And, you know, Cannonier, again, I, I thought it was possible Cannonier could, could knock him out. Like, you know, guy's got a tremendous amount of power. He's a good technical striker. But, you know, Whitaker, I, I thought, was the better overall striker. And uh, due to his more varied tools, he's got better movement. And he's also the fighter that had the, the better potential to wrestle there. Um, and also going back to my earlier point with the topology records, I do think level of opposition is noteworthy. Um, it is not end all be all in a matchup, but I do. Imp- I, I that is something again that I have put more stock into when um, handicapping these fights. You know, that's in a, that example that I brought up just brings it up. You know, uh, Cannonier was basically fighting guys in Branch and Hermanson who are very talented grapplers, not about very talented fighters all around, but basically they were very reliant on grappling. And what happened when they couldn't grapple Cannonier? Well, they lost. Um, and then, well, he faces a fighter in Whitaker who is essentially like. Well, there, there was Anderson Silva that Cannonier faced, but there was a leg injury. But but Whitaker was essentially the first fighter that Cannonier faced that was going to give him that stiff test, um, assuming a finish wasn't going to happen early uh, for all three rounds of action. You know, because of Whitaker's provenness. You know, the, the former champ. You know, the guy, the only guy that that had beat Whitaker these past few years was was Adesanya, who is undefeated and dominant champion and all that. You know, Whitaker has names on his resume like Brad Tavares, Uriah Hall, Yolo Romero times two, um, Darren Till. Like, uh, so, you know, and, and Cannonier, again, I think the guy's a tremendous talent. When I when I see these sort of things, I don't want it to come off as like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, be negative. I'm just trying to be honest and and just, you know, try and look at this objectively, right? You know, again, I, I will look to bet a guy like Cannonier in, in the right matchup. It just, that matchup to me just didn't, Make, make a whole lot of sense at the current odds uh, that is as Canadier as, as, as a slight favorite. I got I got on a Whitaker as a, as an underdog there, slight on underdog, albeit. Um, but again, it is one of those things where yeah, we, we love the finishes as fans, but uh, um, again, we we've seen so many examples of this. You know, these guys that they, you know, they can't find the finish, and then what? Right? Um, if they have if the rest of the game checks out, then again, that's that's serious. That's definitely something that I'm willing to back. Um. <clears throat> But again, uh, it kind of remains to be seen um, in some of these cases. Uh, another kind of couple exa- more examples here. I know I'm kind of going on long here, but uh, I really think that this is uh, worthwhile. Um, I bring this up with fighters regressing, and I usually don't think a fighter is for sure regressing unless if I see it in the octagon. I understand it's a possibility, um, but it is something that I factor into handicapping, you know, is this the fight where they, where they kind of drop off? And the fight that kind of reminds me of this is Tony Ferguson against Charles Oliveira. Uh, it's very obvious. It's on my bet MMA.tips profile. Um, shout out to that website, by the way. Uh, it's been a tremendous tool. Um, very helpful for me um, and others, uh, you know, uh, in, in handicapping. A lot of very useful uh, in, information here. Uh, but Tony Ferguson, uh, I bet him, I, I actually took three units on him on Oliveira. I actually thought it was a good stylistic matchup for Tony. Um, but essentially what made me, you know, warranted the three unit play and say not more was because uh, I was, you know, hesitant on the damage taken from the Gagey fight. And because he was 36 years old heading into that fight and Oliver, I I know is a dangerous opponent. You know, I I know this guy, um, you know, so despite the fact that I, you know, outlined all the advantages that I like for Tony, you know, the cardio, the pacing, um, the fact that he could neutralize Oliveira, um, and I, I thought he was going to get up from the scrambles, but, you know, that fight really showed me that a fighter like him is, you know, unfortunately, you know, just not in his prime anymore. And, and that's just the way it is. Just being, just being honest here. 
Um, the fight game is, you know, these fighters that that stick in it for a long period of time and take a lot of damage, like a guy like Tony Ferguson, it's just, you know, uh, there is there is a decline if, if you stay in the fight game long enough. And that's not to say he's going to lose every fight from here on out. And I, I like the guy. I'm not trying to be, again, I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just trying to say it from a betting standpoint. Um, it's going to be tough for me to, to bet him, um, you know, going forward, just seeing the, you know, both fights, really, the Gaethje fight and the Oliveira fight. Um, another example, but it, it didn't work out, um, you know, it didn't work out wrong for the veteran was like Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera. <clears throat> I would have probably bet Aldo against Vera if I didn't get, um, if the Ferguson scenario didn't happen. And I, I don't regret not playing Aldo because that the reality is I just didn't know. Right. Um, but I was nervous for him because he was coming off a fight with Jan where he took a beating. And that wasn't the only beating he took in his career. He took two beatings to Holloway and, you know, all those in his earlier thirties, but he's been fighting for a while. Right. And, um, you know, Vera is like a, he'll come at you, right. You know, he's, he's a dangerous fighter. So, um, in scrappy. So despite the, the stylistic matchup for Aldo being very favorable, you know, strong, really strong takedown defense should be able to keep the fight standing better striker than, than Vera. He's more technical, more defensively sound more dangerous. Um, and I really like the price on all those a slight favorite, but again, I had to factor that in, you know, again, it was uh, call it recency bias, call it just, um, being, being conservative in that regard. Again, I don't regret, you know, not pulling the trigger on, on all those at bat. Uh, but that, that was my decision right there. Right. And, um, I'm going to factor that in going forward. You know, if there's, if a fighter's coming off a brutal beating, um, I would like to see maybe hold off on the next bet and see how they respond. I know that there's fighters like Whitaker that, uh, you know, he took a lot of damage in the second Romero fight. And then he, um, he fought out of Sonia. He, he looked fine outside of the two knockdowns he got finished. And so it didn't look like it was trending the right way, but I actually bet against him uh, when he fought Till. And I actually liked how he performed there. And I actually liked how he recovered against Till. He took like a hard elbow like a hard step in elbow from Till and it dropped him, but he was, he was fine, man. He, his eyes were clear. Like he was totally with it. I mean, he didn't like, you know, until I, you know, personally, I think he's a really talented striker and, and I liked how Whitaker recovered. So I think that the, you know, the guy's not impossible to hurt or anything like that, but I thought that the durability angle of Whitaker was being a little bit um, overvalued from, from the public standpoint of, of Cannoneer being a favorite because the following fight, I actually used that till fight to help back my my stance on Whitaker against Cannoneer, seeing that his recoverability is, you know, fine. I mean, again, he could get hurt. You know, he did get hurt by Romero. He recovered, though, and went on to win the fight, right? Um, and then uh, just, you know, his defense, right? His defense has always been very good in terms of footwork. You know, he keeps his hands low, but he's very good at reading you, and he'll raise the guard whenever you – attack. He's just such an experienced and, and technical and seasoned striker as Whitaker. Um, so yeah, um, those, those were kind of, uh, things there that I've also pointed out. And another example is step, step ups in competition, right? Again, I talked about level of opposition. It's noteworthy, but another way that I've used it in reverse is a fighter that I just think is kind of like a dark horse, right? In the division, I think a fighter who, despite a lower level of opposition overall compared to say another fighter, and I'm referring to a fighter in Marvin, Marvin Vittori taking on Jack Hermanson. Um, they're doing well with the top competition that they've been handed in front of them, right? Um, 
I'm not going to talk about the Adesanya fight. That was obvious. That was very talked about up up until the lead up. But if you want to look at Vittori's four fights that he's had up or three fights, excuse me, up until Jack, you know, he won a, a one-sided decision against Ferreira, one-sided decision against Sanchez, and he he finished Roberson in the first round. So while you could you could argue for sure that yeah, Jack Jack's resume is better. He beat he beats Souza. He beat Gaslam. You know that that solidifies that he's got a better resume than Vittori, but also look at how Vittori has been doing against these level fighters. You know, he hasn't really looked vulnerable at all, right? Um, so in a scenario like that, I can't, for me at least, I can't hold that against the fighter. You know, if, if, yeah, he's been facing guys that aren't as proven as, you know, the guys that Jack's beating, but he's beating them, you know, very convincingly. I mean, I can't hold that against them. Um, so it, it's definitely something that, um I personally find find is noteworthy because you could get some value on that because I think the public perception of Jack in that fight against Marvin was again more proven resume and I think that um, you know the Marvin slowing down uh, was factored in as well um, but it kind of goes back to my point of like looking at the fight as a whole because yeah while you could say Marvin slows down in fights I mean Jack Jack has slowed down in fights before. Um, you want to go back to the Cannoneer fight? I mean, it's happened more than once. Uh, Souza, he slowed down. Like, and and you want to talk about short notice with Vittori. I mean, he was preparing for a fight against Jacare Souza the following week. Yes, it's two extra rounds, but again, if he's going to be able to control the tempo, which I thought he was in that fight, he should be fine, right? And so that was a fight where I just really liked Marvin. I actually got in on him pretty early at minus 122 um, because despite the step up in competition, despite the the – the short notice. I think that was baked into the betting line. I actually thought Marvin should have been a bigger favorite based on the style matchup. Um, Cause again, I, I kind of broke it down to you guys, but you know, I thought he was a better grappler, better striker, things like that. Um, so yeah. Um, that's something that again, I, I kind of use two sides of the, uh, of the uh, opposition argument. I think, I think in some cases it'll, it'll come down to a scenario like this where I have to factor in, okay, how has this fighter been doing against these fighters that have been, you know, step downs in competition relative to the fighter they're facing now. But in the other instance, um, what is it like in totality? Cause if you have a fighter, like just say, for example, um, you know, like Rafael Dos Anjos against uh, Paul Felder, you know, Paul Felder, has no doubt about it um, hung around with like some of the toughest guys. And this is kind of going into another segue point, um, but seeing how he's kind of fared against some of the guys that have wanted to like grapple with him. Um, those have been fights where he's kind of faced a lot of resistance, right. And, and fighters that um, are historically very well-rounded fight at a high pace um, and, and have fought and beat high level of opposition. You know, we're talking about a guy here in Rafael Dos Anjos who, um, has a win over Kevin Lee, you know, has a win, a couple wins over Donald Cerrone. Um, Felder's res- resume is very, very impressive, uh, no doubt about it. But I actually thought that um, Rafael stylistically and, you know, the level of opposition in, in his entirety um, was kind of being a little bit underrated there. But, you know, because he was a guy who kind of he lost four of his past five fights because, you know, basically he was fighting at welterweight. These guys were a lot of them were bigger and stronger than him. They were able to outgrapple him and leverage that guys like Leon Edwards did that uh, Michael Chiesa, but now we had Dos Anjos dropping down in weight on um, the stylistically. I thought it was a good fight for him, you know, 
Felder was taken down and controlled by, by Trinaldo, by Barboza. Um, Oliveira was put in some bad spots. And then we had a guy here in, in Dos Anjos who um, stylistically, I liked him. I thought fights at the much higher pace. Um, I thought he had the better tools at range with his kicks, better grappler, and just much more prepared. I like Paul Felder a lot. I just thought it was a very difficult matchup due to the circumstances of him um, kind of semi-retiring after the hooker fights, stepping in on like five days notice, which was awesome because he, he saved the card in the main event essentially. Uh, but from a betting perspective, I really thought that Dalsanios was kind of being undervalued due to his recent skid, but I always factor in the level of opposition there. You know, these are guys who he was fighting at, at welterweight and, you know, I thought he actually fared fine, you know, despite losing some of those fights clearly. Uh, again, it was just, he was at a, a grappling disadvantage in those fights. Again, it goes back to how did he lose those fights? Well, he was basically out grappled by, by bigger guys. Was that going to happen in this matchup against Felder? Felder hasn't really shown the willingness to wrestle in the UFC, right? Um, so Felder had a path to victory, but it was basically to, to outstrike Dos Anjos. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought, and the other thing that I liked Dos Anjos there was, was the clinch exchanges as well. So the preparation, the level of opposition, uh, this, the stylistic matchup in its entirety, um, I thought was, was a factor. Another thing about level of opposition, and this is my last point on this comp on this, uh, subject on the same card, actually is Ashley Yoder and Miranda Granger. I think that a lot of people were low on Yoder because her UFC record was like two and five or two and four heading into this bout two and five. I'm looking back at the, at the write-up I did, but this was, this was, in my opinion, a, a great style matchup for her. Um, she was in level of opposition is noteworthy here because we're, we're talking about a woman in Miranda Granger here who prior to this fight had only like two fights in the UFC. Um, one of them, she went three rounds with Hannah, Hannah Goldie, another UFC debutante at the time. And uh, the other one was a quick finish against Amanda Lemos in the first round. So in my opinion, I actually thought Yoder had fought and defeated the higher level of opposition just based on, you know, experience, provenness, and how well she fared against some of these fights. Because I remember going back and looking at some of these fights and going, you know, I think you can make a solid argument that she beat Souza. And I think you can make a solid argument that she beat Marcos um, and Dern, right? Um, so just seeing how she fared in some of these fights against these, these women that she's, again, so much more experienced than Granger in the UFC. I really liked her chances there and just stylistically. Um, I thought she was a much better grappler, in my opinion. You know, if you want to look back at, you know, not just the Lemos fight, but Granger's, you know, fights on the regional scene, she defensive grappling wise, it, it wasn't there. Um, and, and I was really confident that Yoder was, was pretty much the better grappler and she'd be able to take the fight to the ground. Um, she, she took her down in rounds two and three. Um, the first round was kind of weird. I think they ended up in like a, like a, an awkward 50, 50 sort of position, but you know, basically the read came to fruition and that Yoda was a better grappler. She almost got her out of there in the third round. And I think that the, it was a spot to capitalize on because the public was just down on Yoder, who was two and five in the UFC. You know, the public will see her UFC resume more than they will see regional tape on Miranda Granger, just because that's how it works. You know, people, uh, there's just more eyes on the UFC's product than there is, you know, the YouTube uh, regional fights on, on YouTube. Right. Um, but that's where I really feel like you could get an edge. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a great fight for her and, uh, just much better grappler and wrestler. And I just, I thought that despite being two and five in the UFC, she had that level of opposition advantage by pretty clear margin there. Um, 
because I can't, it's not for me, it's just not fair to just look, oh, okay, this fighter lost. Okay, well, did they lose by a lot? Or was it a blowout of a margin? Or how did they fare? Well, stylistically, if they lost in that way, could their opponent that they're fighting right now, could they pose the same stylistic problems? Like, I, I got to factor this stuff in rather than just going, oh, this fighter lost, therefore they're going to lose the next fight. Like, that's just to me. I would be doing this a disservice to anybody that subscribed by just going off that logic. Um, Cause it, you know, it's so hard to go undefeated in this game. You know, it's, it's hard to win a fight, right. In the UFC, it's the, the top promotion uh, in mixed martial arts. Right. And so, yeah, that was my kind of logic there. Um, and I guess a couple more bets to touch up on. Thank you guys so much. If you've been sticking around here, we're almost at 50 minutes. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, but another one was Alex Hernandez against Chris Gritzmacher. And I bet him at minus 300, but I honestly thought there was value there. Um, I know it's a big number, but I didn't understand where stylistically Gritzmacher was better than him. Um, and if you want to couple that with Hernandez is a much better athlete. He's younger. Uh, optically, the his youth, uh, where he trains, he just moved out to Denver, Colorado to train with uh, – um, factory X Muay Thai with Mike Mark Montoya and those guys and, and Gritzmacher was coming off a couple injuries and uh, a layoff, right? And stylistically, I just, you know, if Fernandez wasn't going to win on the feet, I actually thought he was the better grappler. You know, if you want to go back to the Hamos fight or the, the Skelly fight, you know, you can't take Gritzmacher down. You can't take his back. Um, and, and Hernandez is a pretty serious wrestler and, and grappler, a BJJ brown belt. Um, and so I just thought it was a case where despite Hernandez was a big favorite there, he should have been a a bigger favorite and why the line was where it was, at least where I got it at minus 300, I think he closed much higher was because I think the public was just kind of down on him. Right. You know, we see this with a lot of these prospects who come into the UFC with a lot of hype, you know, or, or maybe not so much, but then they come in and they, they get a, a quick win, but they look really good. And again, this goes back to the finishing point, you know, Hernandez goes out there and he knocks off Benil Dariush. How great does that win look? Right. That's a tremendous win. Um, and then he goes out there and he beats uh, Olivier Alban Mercier, right. In three rounds. So he looks great. A lot of people are sold on him. Okay, he could finish guys. He could finish really good fighters, and he could win. Um, he can win decisions against uh, you know proven fighters in the UFC. And then he loses to Cerrone, right? He loses to Cerrone in like a, a veteran versus prospect type of matchup, and you know I think people are a little down on him, right? You know because he, he lost to Cerrone as a, a, a sizable favorite. I don't not a, not a huge favorite, but a favorite nonetheless. And then the following fight against Trinaldo, he wins, but a lot of people thought Trinaldo won. And again, I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I think he can make a very solid case. Trinaldo won that fight, but he didn't look good. You know, he barely landed any strikes, wasn't really engaging that much. And he just kind of stuck and moved on the outside. Then the following fight, he gets finished by Drew Dover, right? Okay. So again, this is one of these things where, again, I can't just look at, oh, he's lost a couple of these fights. Therefore, I'm, you know, no matter what, he's going to lose the next fight. That is just, I again, I would be doing such a disservice to you guys if I just analyzed fights like that. I cannot just look at fights like that. I got to look at the stylistic matchup. Chris Gritzmacher was a great style matchup for Alexander Hernandez. I don't think there's much of a date, debate to be had, especially considering how the fight played out. I mean, Hernandez went out there and looked like a like a minus 1,000 favorite. And I'm just going to be completely blunt about it. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying this uh, in somewhat passion because I, I just personally think that uh, this is one of the reasons why there, there's an edge to be had, right? I mean, I can't just look at recent results and go, uh, you know, he lost. He lost by knockout. Therefore, he's going to get knocked out again. He got knocked out by Drew Dover, who's a very technical striker, who has very good footwork and has big power in his hands. He got knocked out by Donald Cerrone, who was basically an accumulation. Cerrone's a very seasoned, experienced striker, and he finished him with a head kick. 
This was not the same style fight at all for Hernandez. And I want to make that very clear because it should be noteworthy when, when assessing fights to not just look at previous fights. It, just look at how they deal in that type of style matchup. He was a much better athlete than Gritzmacher. Stylistically, he was the better striker. He moved a lot better. He was the better grappler, the better wrestler. Um, and he had the more finishing upside there as well. So that that is my passionate rant on why I bet four units on Alexander Hernandez um, at minus 300. And I hope that makes sense because it is one of these things where, you know, every every matchup is a new matchup, right? Every, new, every day is a new day, as they say. I mean, I can't just look at past results and that be – you know, just look at wins and losses and go, oh, you know, and, and kind of factor that in. I, I don't I, I got to look at the style matchup at hand. Um, couple other ones, I guess, is, you know. <clears throat> OK, one, one more topic. Um, I'll call it somewhat of a blind fight, but. I say that kind of loosely because it wasn't really a blind fight to me. It might be a blind fight to others, but betting Kamzat Shemaev, um, not just once, but twice in the UFC thus far. Um, and I'm not trying to get, I'm not, what, what I'm trying to get to here is I'm not trying to get on here and say he's going to beat Leon Edwards. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about his matchups with, with John Phillips and, and Gerald Mearshart, right? Um, this was another example where there was a lot of reason to capitalize on, on regional tape. If you watched regional tape on Shemaev, and maybe you did, you knew he was going to beat Phillips. You knew it. I mean, the dude had uh, a high wrestling pedigree. Um, you could see, like, process-wise on the ground, he's very good at taking guys down, advancing in top position, and he's a finishing threat. You could also tell on tape that he's a great athlete. Um, seems like a dangerous striker. You know, he trains with he trains with UFC-level fighters like uh, Alexander Hernandez, uh, those fighters uh, over there in, in Sweden, all those, all those people over there. Um, you knew that this guy was going to beat Phillips basically if you watch tape on him because because we knew Phillips his ground game we've seen it numerous times it's not it's not UFC level right that was an edge to be had because I actually got in on Shemaev uh, pretty early um, I'm gonna actually go back I'm not that far back Kamzat Shemaev yeah I got in on on him at minus two forty five um, granted his line shot up throughout the week but that shows. You know that that doing not procrastinating, getting the work done, not just in this, but in anything there you you could get ahead of the curve, um, so to speak. And it was a great style matchup for him. But again, it was one of those cases where people weren't as willing to look at the regional tape on a fighter because they didn't have that UFC experience. There's just a lot more eyes on the UFC footage, the UFC product, however you want to word it. Um, so that one was was easy, right? So to break down. And then we had the Gerald Mearshart fight, right? So it's a step up in competition. But even though I had, I have, I still do have questions on Shemaev's cardio past like the second round. I don't think his cardio is bad. I mean, he still looks fresh in round two from what we've seen him. Um, fights at a high pace, things like that. Uh, but in a matchup like this against Mearshart, who also doesn't have, you know, well, I shouldn't say also, but has shown, has proven that he doesn't have good cardio. Um, if you want to reference uh, the, the Kevin Holland fight, um, you know, Mearshart's one of these guys who who outlasts guys. And I, I'm not trying to be mean here, but stylistically, this was a great fight for Chimaev. Why? Well, I didn't predict him in the way that I thought he was going to win, but I thought that uh, mainly he was going to take down Mearshart and pass his guard and, and basically beat him up and, and maybe get a finish. You know, Mearshart has been taken down and getting his guard passed in a lot of fights. Um, the Kevin Holland fight, the Trevin Giles fight, he gets mounted often. 
uh, Oscar Pichota. I thought Chemayev was going to basically dominate him, him on the ground. Uh, but I also thought Chemayev had the advantage striking. I thought he was more technical strike and more dangerous. He has better footwork, better defense. Um, and I also checked to see on the regional table, what, what is his chin like? How does, you know, how does he react when he actually gets punched? Because we didn't really even see, we haven't really even seen him get punched in the UFC. So I, I did look back and see it. Chin seems fine. His legs don't really stiffen up, nothing like that. So, you know, again, and Mearshart hasn't shown to be a huge power puncher. So this was a, a risk I was willing to take, right? Because Jemayev is, is still kind of an unknown, right? But stylistically, he was much better than Mearshart everywhere, better athlete. Stylistically, he's better everywhere as well. Um, and I was willing to play him. And I also played the under in that fight. And so I say this is kind of like a blind fight loosely because we have a fighter here who we don't have, again, say as much information as other fighters. Uh, we don't. We have a fighter here who, who hasn't been past the second round in a pro MMA fight. But that said, there's still enough info on this fighter, for me at least, to, to be confident that he's going to beat Gerald Mearshart, right? Um, and so that that is another kind of thing that... Um, I've become more conscious of uh, when handicapping these fights is, is, is kind of factoring that in. Um, and, and even as a big favorite, I, I thought outside of a fluke, he was going to win that fight. And I say flukes for me personally, I say at most it's 10% of the time, the fluke ish slash un, you know, unlikely scenario at most 10% of the time I give 10% logo room. Um, so, you know, there's some fighters where I just think that they're going to win outside of the fluke. Another fighter that comes to mind is Sean Brady against uh, Christian Aguilera. I, I bet him at minus 360 there. You know, I liked his chances everywhere the fight went. I thought he was a much better striker uh, technique-wise, pace-wise. I thought he was more durable and defensively sound as well than, than Aguilera. And uh, another uh, safety blanket, if you want to call that for my bet, is I just thought he was a much better grappler. You know, I've seen Aguilera take him down and get his back taken in a lot of fights. And, uh, you know, be put in submission attempts. And, and Brady's a really strong wrestler, a uh, black belt under Henzo Gracie, right? Um, and I think that's why, you know, Aguilera was a decent sized underdog to Ivy. Ivy just never really got his game, game going. So it's another instance where I, I believe that Brady would have been a bigger favorite if we didn't see Aguilera knock out Ivy. Um, or, or perhaps we didn't see, you know, Brady uh, slow down a little bit against Court McGee. Again, stuff that's noteworthy, but I, I do still think that that's what makes some of these lines have value. Because um, <clears throat> if you wanted to look at the Aguilera fight with Ivy, I mean, he hit his win condition, essentially. I mean, I remember going on my breakdown being like, he's a much better striker than a, a, uh, Ivy. He's uh, Ivy doesn't look comfortable on the feet. And what, what happens? He goes out there and finishes Ivy quickly. Ivy just never got his game going. It's not to say that Ivy couldn't have taken him down. Um, again, it just it doesn't it didn't look like he had a chance based on how the fight played out that time. Uh, but had Ivy gotten his grappling going, I think there's a decent chance he would have been able to take down Aguilera based on the the regional footage that I've seen of him. Um, so it was a spot where even at minus three sixty, I felt very confident backing Brady um, because, like, outside of a fluke, how how does he lose that fight? Basically, um, I guess one more thing. Now that I'm on a, on a passion fueled rant. Uh, thank you so much for sticking with me. Um, <clears throat> spots that are undervalued based on uh, history, but not necessarily on stylistic matchup. So let me explain. Mallory Martin heading, heading into her fight with Hannah Cyphers. Um, I'm going to pull up her martial arts record just to mix martial arts record. That is just to fact check myself before that fight with Hannah Cyphers. She 
Okay, she had two, she had three wins, excuse me, by finish in her mixed martial arts pro career to Mallory Martin. Um, she was a brand new fighter, relatively speaking. We we only had saw her once in the UFC, and it was against uh, Verna Jandaroba. Um, and she she lost. She lost by submission, actually. Um, she was going against Hannah Cyphers, who has shown a lot of defensive grappling flaws. Um, I was confident that, you know, if Martin got Cyphers down, and I was confident in that based off the wrestling dynamic there, um, she'd be a pretty decent candidate to get a finish. Um, at plus 257, I took a two-unit shot on that. Um, why? Because even though Martin doesn't have, you know, all of her wins aren't by finish, she's still a woman who goes out there, she'll pass her guard, and she'll look to get the finish. She has nice uh, ground and bound, and I believe she's also a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and, so, and we've seen Cyphers finish on the ground in all of her losses. So, like, on one hand of it, you have, you know, Martin who hadn't, you know, won by finish in the UFC. She only had fought once. I mean, she hadn't finished in every single fight she won professionally. Uh, you had, on the flip side, you had Cyphers who had been finished on the ground in all of her losses, and yet Martin was still plus 257 to finish inside the distance. So that's another instance where the public isn't as aware, isn't as aware about who Martin is as a fighter. Therefore, there's opportunity to capitalize. At least that's the way I see it. Because uh, if you looked at the tape, you knew Martin was the type of fighter who's going to go out there, land takedowns, pass your guard, basically look to get the finish, even though that's not what happened every time. And if you look at Cyphers, she, again, she's she has power. She showed in that fight. She almost, fin she almost finished that fight, got like a 10-8 in round one. I'm not going to act like <laughs> I, I wasn't sweating that or anything like that. I certainly was. Uh, but, but you know, when we've seen Cyphers taken down, she's been finished on her back. Uh, she was finished by Macy Barber, Angela Hill, Mackenzie Dern, Maria Agapova. There was four examples of this in the UFC in the lead up to this fight. And even if you want to go back to the Jody Esquivel fight, she didn't get finished in there. Obviously, she won. She won a decision, but she was taken down. She was controlled. So the wrestling defense and the grappling defense on the mat has, has shown a clear susceptibility. And that's why I thought there was a lot of value um, on Martin inside the distance there at plus 257 based on the stylistic matchup and based on the the Cypher's dynamic of, of what, how does she lose in the UFC? Well, she is lost by being put on her back and, and finished. Um, so yeah, there, there's been many, uh, that was actually my rebound event, the event that really got me going there. UFC fight nights. I believe that was Rackage versus Smith. Um, really got me up and running there. Um, and then got me kind of brought me uh, back on the run that I've been on. So um, yeah, that'll actually conclude this uh, betting recap here. It was a lot of fun guys. Um, looking forward to doing better in 2021. Um, I've actually started look, looking into the the next card. Um, so I actually I already have a couple bets placed. I actually have three, um, but uh, I, I love it so much. I don't. I, this doesn't even feel like a break to me, right? You know, I, I want to do this. Um, and we got three cards, you know, but in <laughs> January 16th when we come back, uh, so that's going to be fun. It's always nice to have Wednesday cards, but um, yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to, to any feedback you guys have. I really appreciate the support as always. I hope the year was was awesome for you guys in, in every aspect of what, what it is you're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, lessons and lessons and blessings. Uh, we got another year to to showcase our, our, our craft. Right. Um, and so we're looking forward to that. Uh, should be a fun year and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So I'd like to sign off. Wish you all well. And I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much.